Welcome to the Kelowna Real Estate Podcast with your host, award-winning realtor, Matt Glenn, and top producing mortgage broker, Taylor Atkinson. Professionals in the industry, enthusiastic entrepreneurs, and successful investors. When it comes to real estate, we're all in. All right, welcome back to the Kelowna Real Estate Podcast. Yeah, thanks for tuning in, guys. We have a wicked show today. It's it's a little bit longer, so we won't do a, a huge intro on it. But yeah, Dean DeRossier came on, and it was uh, he's an interesting guy. He's the vice president of the Kelowna Pickleball Association. Yeah, greatest accomplishment. He's quite an active coach for real estate agents. Does a little bit of other coaching as well to help people kind of find their niche and their passion and scale business. Yeah, really great guy. Good intentions, well spoken. Yeah, I personally love the conversation. He's yeah, awesome. it was a lot of things to take away from it. It was, uh, it was a fun one. Yeah, we do ask him crystal ball question at the end. His insight, uh, where the market's going, why it's heading there, and he has some great takeaways. So hopefully, you guys enjoy. Yeah, enjoy. Welcome to the icebreaker. This segment of the show is brought to you by Taylor at Venture Mortgages. Come venture into the exciting world of mortgages. Okay, well, do you want to walk us through what your perfect day would look like? When do you get up? What gives you energy throughout the day? Like what makes you a productive individual? You know, I, I it's funny. I, I started, uh, I used to travel for work and I was a sale, outside salesperson. I had a car, I had a credit card and all that stuff. Yeah. And, you know, traveling around, you end up having to get early morning flights and things like that. And, and you know, you're kind of working 10, 12 hours a day, so you're pretty tired. So I used to sort of sleep in a little bit, you know, because I'd be working all night. But when I was meeting some of my clients at the time who were uber successful, running larger clinics and doing, you know, really doing lots of cool stuff, they all had one thing in common. They got up early. Yeah. And I always said to myself, you know, when I kind of have my own business one day, I want to get that routine going, just getting up early. And it's not that a ton of stuff has to happen. It's just kind of getting up early. Yeah. So for me, getting up early, it's really hard, especially when you're doing a deal at 10 o'clock at night in real estate. Yeah. So if I can get to bed at a decent time, I try to get up by 6. Yeah. And, and I'm up at 6, 6.15. Perfect day. I used to eat breakfast and cook a nice breakfast. And I realized that, you know, at 56, my hormones aren't so great. So I try to skip meals. Now I have a really nice coffee. Yeah. yeah. I have a, my espresso machine is a Breville and it's, yeah. it's, it's the only sacred thing in my house. If the house starts on fire, I grab Wendy, the dog and the Breville. Yeah. We're all that, uh, we're all slaves to the Breville, I think. I think so. Yeah. yeah. So, so I get up early and I, I think that's a recipe. I'm not one of those, like, I don't care if I make my bed, but I do yeah. now because Jordan Peterson told me I should. Yeah. So, and, and then my wife's been telling me for 33 years to make the bed. So <laughs> she's like, you only listen to Jordan. Well, I look back and go, ah, damn it. So then I walk back and yeah, I make yeah. it, right? So so success getting up is getting up early. And then whatever it is that I got to knock off, I try to get that stuff done before 10, 11. And I think, you know, switching from real estate sales, which I was doing two and a half years ago to now broker support and coaching, it's different now. Back then, it, I was able to do a lot of paperwork before 11 o'clock. I was able to do a lot of like, maybe marketing, outbound communications, you know, you know, sort of busy work. Because when 11 o'clock hit, that's when the showings and the deals and the negotiations started happening. So I've changed that a bit because now I coach in the morning. I only coach Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I try not to coach Monday and Fridays. And you know what? Mondays and Fridays are a little bit more like I try to make Monday a paperwork day, right? And then, you know, what happens is the deals come in from the weekend. And then, so my day is a little more disheveled the last couple of years, but I, I think getting up early is, is super important. So that's a good day for me. And if I get up early, get a ton of work done. I actually don't like... Like a lot of guys are like, oh, you know, you got the afternoon free. I, I don't really like that. I kind of, I find myself working at six o'clock sometimes, which is probably not good. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, but an ideal day for me would be getting up early, getting a ton of stuff before 10 or 11, and then dealing with that sort of flex time during the day. Uh, I'm still getting better at it. I would say it's been two and a half years and I've got a little cadence to my week now that seems to be working out. But And physical activity, are you morning or afternoon? I know no, pickleball is probably the the sport well physical activity you know it's interesting golf i like to do it in the morning yeah so yeah golf's like so, 6 30 first guy's out right and yeah, then yeah. and if it's not a bad course you're done by 10 or 11 right back nine and breakfast in town is not too bad you're done by 8 39 right yeah pickleball is one of those things because i've been trying to play a lot of pickleball it's generally evenings weekends you know that's when people are kind of playing the retired group of people they like to play pickleball during the day during the week and they play early but early for them is like eight o'clock 
it's not like a 630 thing. And, and it's, it's interesting because, I mean, that would be perfect, right? For me, I could play pickleball for two hours from 630 to 830. <laughs> but people over 60, they're not, you can't get them out of bed. <laughs> they play pickleball. <laughs> but like eight o'clock at night, they won't play pickleball. So there's kind of a funny little time thing. To yeah. Do. So, yeah. yeah. So the, how did you get into be the vice president? What are you? The, the... I'm the vice president of the Pickleball Kelowna Club. Wow. How did you get that? Did you have to win some tournaments? No one else wanted the title. <laughs> I was in the room at the wrong time, actually. <laughs> yeah. The the past president was Dale Charlton, who uh great like four point five, almost five point player, a little older in his seventies, and just a super skilled guy. He was in the dental industry. And so when I started I, I, I joined the pickleball club the first year I learned it, two thousand eighteen. And I met him at the courts and and he knew me right away. And I, I had trouble kind of placing him because I'd never seen him wearing pickleball clothes before. And so yeah. he kind of tapped me on the shoulder and he said, hey, Dean, and we had some good, you know, reminiscing about the dental business. So that was fun. And then uh, he looked into my background and of course he had been the president, I think, for six or seven years in a row. So, and that happens so much in, in nonprofits, things like that, you know, like one or two people kind of end up getting, they do a lot of the work and, yeah. and the, the session planning is not there. And he said, you know, I want to, I want to take the club to the next level. Would you like to help out? And I said, well, I don't know much about pickleball, but I could help you on that side. So I did. So I signed up and he made me the equipment manager the first year. <laughs> And he said, uh, he was, I was very proud of it. He said, uh, at, at our end of our first year, he said, you know, you're the best equipment manager we've ever had in the history of this club. And I went, wow. He goes, yeah, you're the only equipment manager we've ever had, but you are the best one. You're going to start calling so, Bobby Boucher. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. But it just shows, you know, you work hard at a, yeah, yeah. any entry level job and here you are vice president. Now. Yeah. Yeah. You, and, and but part of that was more to support them with my corporate knowledge more than anything else. Just try to help them out a little bit to kind of keep the people that are volunteering, keeping it fun and keeping yeah. them sort of on the right side of what they should be doing rather than getting stuck down into, you know, volunteer mode versus director mode. Right. So they're, they're, like what happened was the directors in a nonprofit, typically they're small. They're just volunteers who just want to do stuff. But, you know, when you have a, a board of directors that has to make decisions, those are slightly different. So, you know, certainly you can volunteer and help run the tournament, but the directors need to make, may need to make kind of bigger decisions for the club. Yeah. And the club, you know, has a lot of members. Uh, a lot of members have a lot of experience. I mean, the club was founded by a surgeon. It's not a group of, you know, people that don't have a lot of experience. So mm -hmm. there's a fairly high level of uh, competency to kind of support those type of people. And, you know, pickleball is a great game. It's growing so fast. There's so many things coming at them that I thought it'd be fun to sort of be in at that level. So, yeah, cool. And then for our listeners, myself yep. included, then before, like, are you from Kelowna originally? Nope. Before, So you had a corporate background. Where were you based? I grew up, I was born in Victoria, uh, overlooking the ocean. You can hear it now, the sea, you know, seabirds. And the waves <laughs> crashing on the shore. <laughs> yeah. But I grew up in Victoria. My, I grew, uh, actually, I was born in Victoria. I grew up in Ladner in Vancouver, oh, a yeah. little fishing village. So yeah. interesting enough, my mom was the sales, one of the first female salespeople at a company called Irwin Toy. And Irwin Toy was a toy distributor in Canada that had all the top brands, Tyco, Mattel, Atari, they had everything. Yeah. And, you know, I think in the early 70s, they had about like 25 sales representatives and they had, you know, 23 of them were guys in suits and 22 women. And my mom was one of the first two women they hired. And uh, she was uh, on her own raising four kids. And uh, my mom used to take us out for dinner once a month on the company dollar to kind of give us a little reward. And I went, I, you know, I want to do that. This looks like a fun thing to do. So uh, when I went to university, it was like, just get out and get a job in sales. So that's what I did. Went to university at UPC. Oh, my God. 86. A long time ago. Yeah. Uh, wow, so you've been in sales your whole working yeah, career? Yeah, the whole time. Yeah. I started at a gas station pumping gas when I was 11. And then went to UBC, got out of university in 1990, met Wendy in 1990, uh, spent uh, a year with her, proposed to her actually after knowing her for three months. That was fun. Wow. wow. Yeah. Still with her or she's still with me. Her. <laughs> I think at this point, she just wants to see how it ends. It's, it's like a story <laughs> that you just can't look away from. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, so, yeah. So we've been together a long time, but yeah. I always wanted to go into sales. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. yeah. Cool. And now your primary role is coaching, helping others succeed, essentially. Yeah. So I'm a partner here at the, the, the office, Century 21 here in Kelowna. Yeah. So I'm a broker. I have a broker license. 
but so I'm assistant. I call myself the Dwight Schrute of the office. <laughs> so I'm assistant <laughs> to the out. assistant manager yes. broker person. So yeah. Shirley, who's True our managing that. broker, is the boss. Yeah. But as a the owner broker slash partner, I'm kind of her assistant. So I'll pitch in when she needs help. And I'm seeing a lot of shoot come out of you. Yeah, oh, good time, good yeah. family heritage. Pizza there. in your bag. Yeah. <laughs> I am. You know, I I walk in and whenever I can't find my stapler, I just check in my drawer. <laughs> yeah, and I haven't found it in Jello yet, but I'm sure it's going to happen. So I'm curious who Jim is in the office then for you. We don't have a Jim. Thank you. No? Okay. There is a Jim, but I'm not going to mention his name here because I don't want to trigger him because I know he'll turn into a Jim. Right. Yeah. But he's been, you know. We used to play a lot of tricks on each other in the office back when I first started. Yeah. There's a few tricksters in the office. They've been on low, low roar lately, but they'll, if they do show up, stuff will happen. So, yeah. yeah. I well, proudly take the Creed role, by the way. Thanks for you? asking, too. Yeah. I, well, I'm looking at you as Cousin Mo, to be honest. <laughs> cousin Mo. <laughs> yeah. Creed's just kind of scary now. Now, yeah. I'm, now I'm afraid of you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, for coaching, if somebody, I mean, obviously you coach mostly just agents here and then all over Canada, but not kind of around the Okanagan, just for obvious reasons. Yeah, so I started, um, I, I started coaching in 2018. Interesting enough, the office brought a speaker to the to our club 21, which has room for, you know, about 40, 50 people in it. And her name was Suze Cumming. And she was a broker from Ontario for many years. And she had a company called the nature of real estate. And she taught this course called the certified negotiation expert program. And I thought, okay, fine. I'll sign up for that. Like, why not? Right. And so she taught the course. I think it was uh, two days here, uh, full days. And I was blown away by her kind of her, her way that she approached uh, negotiation for sure. And then just sort of candid way of kind of asking questions, interacting with the agents. And, you know, I'd been in the business for, you know, wow, almost nine years at the time. And no, it was about eight years. And I thought, oh, and I asked her what she did. She said, well, I primarily coach. I went, oh, cool. I'd probably, you know, so I talked to her about it. I finished that program, which was the CNE one. And then I did the CNE two. And she said, hey, ever thought I want to be a coach? I'm doing a coach's training program. I, hey, I got to see what that's all about. Now, if I preface that, I'd been asked to be a coach for people many years before. And I was consulting in the biotech business for a long time. And I used to coach dental practices, but I, I wasn't a hundred percent wanting to be anybody's coach. And anyone who's been ever asked advice, who's performed at a reasonably high level might be able to sort of identify with this. I didn't want to be responsible for coaching them poorly because I know I can do it. And I know I can go home and, you know, have a little cry and sort of pick myself back up and get back out there. But I didn't want to be the guy to sort of coach people and, you know, maybe send them in the wrong direction without have the proper skills. And and I'd seen that here in Kelowna. And in 2008, uh, you know, when I did start in real estate and we go and you meet people, I met, I met more life coaches than I met clients my first couple of years. And I said to myself, I don't want to be that. And it's not that the life coaches I met maybe weren't good life coaches. I just didn't have the, uh, the desire to kind of bite that off. Cause I didn't want to be fake and phony about it. And I didn't want to own some of the things you'd probably have to own. And I thought I'm not going to do it. Cause people would always ask me, Hey, you're successful. Can you help me? And I would help them. And then I'd be like, ah, oh, you know, am I really helping them? And, and I, I don't think I really was, but when people ask for advice and you give it good, that's great. But I learned through through that that's not actually not coaching. And so when I met her, I thought, okay, here's somebody that coaches the way I think I could coach. So I learned from her. So a year and a half later, I got accredited with her program. And then a year after that, I took a, a program through Toronto, which is part of the CTI model, which is the Coaches Training Institute, which is kind of the one of the over, uh, governing bodies that kind of oversees what you'd call experiential coaches. So real coaching. And so I've been doing that now for since 2018. Nice. Yeah. And, and that provides you with tons of energy, I would imagine. Pretty rewarding job. It is. It's funny. You know, you, you go into it. Like I said to you guys before we actually started the podcast, you know, coaching, it gets lumped into training. It gets uh, lumped into education and it gets lumped into maybe motivation. You know, like what does a coach do kind of thing? Yeah. And, you know, I was a competitive volleyball player. I went to UBC for volleyball. And, you know, I thought I had a really good coach in high school and he was not that he never pumped people up. He didn't do the football coach thing where he put you on the bench and screamed at you. And, you know, we didn't chant around and do crazy things. But, you know, what people think a coach is in, say, the sports world and what the really good coaches are, it's often not what you see. And in real estate, it's the same kind of thing. You know, like a real estate coach is not is different than what people probably think it is. And so a lot of it's not about me pumping up the energy in a client. It's me pulling out the energy in the client. 
uh, so that their energy just comes to the surface instead, because that will last a lot longer than me right. feeding them the energy. Yeah. So yeah, at the end of a coaching session, I have a lot of energy, but I'm also tired because it's, it's work. Yeah. So that's, so you don't want them to walk away and be amped up for a day or two and then flatline again and then come back to you. So how do you sustain that energy with them? Like what's, well, part of it is when we're coaching is seeing, understanding that, that all the amazing things they've already done is, is was inside of them. And then just bringing that out in the conversations that we're having and getting them to work on a plan. And it's, it's kind of finding all that stuff that's inside of them versus, Hey, go call five people. Yeah. You know, Rather than saying, okay, well, if, you know, wh- what happened when you called five people last week or what happened when you called one person last week, like what's really going on in the type of conversations you're having, if that's important to that person. In our world in real estate, there's two types of coaches that I see. One are what I call program coaches who have a program. It's a preset program by their leader who has said, Hey, if you do these 100 things, 200 days later, you're going to have a client. And the other group of coaches, which is a much smaller group, which probably maybe 10%, are people who are doing what's called experiential-based real coaching. So you're coaching the person at whatever level they need to be. It, many times it can border on, a little bit on like a little bit of therapy, but it's not. It's much more focused on your business goals, your personal goals, your you know what you have for inventory to pull on for skills. But it's very self-driven about, hey, what do you want to talk about today? And are you going to commit to doing these things? Yes or no? And you know what's stopping you from doing these things? Uh, you know, get, helping people understand that they, the business is theirs, right? Whereas over here on the program side, it's like, you know, go to 10 pushups and, you know, go do 10 chin-ups yeah. and you'll have nice abs at the end of it. Well, there's lots of people in real estate that go do all those things that their coach tell them to do and they still don't have a client. Yeah, that is very true. And, yeah. and, and so how do you, so I didn't want to be that guy because I could tell you that I called 50 people a day for 10 days, right? I could tell you that I knocked on a couple of doors and then, you know, wanted to shoot myself. I didn't like it. And I I said, there had to be a different way to do it. So, so I found this type of coaching actually allows my clients to do, to bring it out in them rather than me superimposing my skills on them. So it's an interesting way to do it. And so we, we always start with a business plan. It's kind of fun to see how that evolves. It's kind of neat. What's the kind of the timeframe? Like if someone in the brokerage were to come up to you, is it like, Okay, let's get together once a week, twice a week, once a month. And then is that going to be for six months or a year? Or is it just as they evolve and you guys are happy with the outcome? Or is it like a lifetime? Should everyone have a coach forever? I would say, you know, I have a coach. My relationship with my coaches slash maybe mentors, right? It evolves, right? Sometimes I talk to them maybe every couple of weeks. Sometimes I go two or three months without talking to them. So, you know, you have to look at who's your support network for what you might need. So real estate is, you know, you do an inventory of what your skills are. It's like, okay, well, you know, sometimes we need the program coaches because we need the booklet. We need the list of things to do. Um, you know, that coach can walk you through those things and th- those are great. And you might be successful by doing that. But at the end of a set period of time, you're going to say, okay, well, I've done all these things. What's next, right? Well, what's next is how do you evolve personally? And that's where the type of coaching that I do can kind of really come in. So I don't really look for people. Like, I don't really want to coach brand new agents. I want to coach people that have been out there for a few years, have tried lots of different stuff, who have some experience because then they can pull that into, you know, sort of really laying the groundwork of 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 a more profitable and a healthier way to kind of work. So it's a subtle difference. I mean, I think we need program coaches because that those materials are good, but there's also thousands of ways to run your business. So if there's thousands of ways to run your business and you've been in real estate for a few years, the only question you have to ask is which are the right ones for you? Cause you can only do three or four. Yeah, for sure. So, so that's kind of part of that. Process. So would you like, are you a fan of like honing the skills that you're already good at or like getting better at the things that you're not I think you have to develop new skills all the time you know when I was in the biotech business I was very lucky because we had lots of training you know every three months we were taking training so I would say you know the learning agenda that one of my clients have is just as important as the coaching sessions but I think you know the great thing about real estate is you know there isn't anything that we can't learn personally that doesn't benefit our business like for example playing pickleball Well, I can go play pickleball. That can benefit my business. Why? Well, I have to learn how to play the game at a level where people would want to play with me, right? So that's one thing. Number two, I have to learn to be a good sport. So if if I'm kind of a bit of a competitive, you know, grumpy bum, 
that's not going to help me in pickleball because people are going to play with me and think I'm a jerk, right? Yeah. And they're going to automatically translate my habits on the court to my business habits. Yeah. yeah. But if at the same time, if I'm too much of a loosey-goosey guy that doesn't take things seriously, that could have a negative impact. Yeah. So if I work on myself, I'm also working on my business. So if those are so you look at your your you know your, your self skills, but then there's always technical stuff, man. I mean, this business, you know, I mean. I've been around long enough now that one one of the old guys, but yeah, we have electricity now, you know, like there's, you know, there's been a lot of changes. And when I started, there was eight photos on the MLS system. And I think the average size was 150 kilobytes of those photos, you know? So now there's what, 50 photos in there. I think there's a hundred now. Yeah, they're, they're massive. So, so yeah. technically, there's always going to be that change. So, I think there's always going to be some technical learning, which is fun, you know. And then I say that, and then you look at some of the real successful realtors who don't touch technology at all, right? And they yeah. just decided that they're going to work on these kind of things. But I think a learning plan is always there. Yeah. yeah. The great part is you choose what you want. I mean, uh, like learning to play pickleball was, you know, obviously I couldn't write it off, right? Uh, in terms <laughs> of my taxes, but it definitely has benefited my business over the years. Taylor could help you with the tax thing. I'm sure you can find something. Yeah, yeah you can yeah. write that off for sure. Does CRA listen to this? I don't really want to. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I will... I'd sacrifice you being audited to get another listener. <laughs> yeah, really? Yeah. I'd be like, hey, let's find out how those realtors are hiding things. But, yeah. you know, and so things like, you know, the way you show up to pickleball has a lot to do with the way you're going to be viewed in business, I think. And so, yeah. you know, that's the part of the, I think that's the exciting part of being a real estate agent. It's also the negative part because you also sometimes feel like you're always on. Yeah, you are. Yeah. But then that goes back to the comment I made before we started with it. You know, like, I don't worry about what I'm going to say. I worry about what I think. Right. And uh, that's something I think I'm a lot better person now than I was maybe 15 years ago, just maybe a better person overall. And I think real estate's maybe that way, too, because, you know, you do have a sense of community when you are helping people buy and sell houses in your community. I think that's kind of a. Yeah, I've never thought about that before. Not consciously anyway, but you I am always like kind of thinking like. I can't be making a fool of myself here because like these are potential clients and, yeah. or whatever. Like you just, you're in the, you have signs all over the place. People think that you're. Yeah. You have constant figure. accountability. Yeah. And like you're on there and you realize like, even like the friends that I've had since I was a kid, just can't go out like a jackass now, you know, like you've got to think about the, those kinds of things. Yeah. So, and it's different. But what I like about that, that, that whole thought process is little things you do can really mean a lot later on. Yeah. You know, and, and yeah. that, I learned that from probably my first business coach. His name was Lars Sjogren. He was um, an industrial psychologist out of Switzerland. And we were lucky in Canada. I had him for a number of years. And his philosophy was small changes create big results. Big changes generally create small results. So he said, you know, like, look at yourself. Like, what kind of small things can you do? And, and, you know, one of those things is saying thank you. You You'd be surprised how little people say thank you these days, you know? And I look at the person that Tim Hortons handed me the coffee. I look him in the eye, say, thank you. You know, it can go a long way. It sounds really corny, but, you know, little things like that can really add up over time. So you're right. You know, you're in these public situations where maybe before you were not paying attention yeah, just because you didn't have to. Yeah. Now it's like, oh, well, hey, I'm on the Internet now, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I got a picture on a, on a sign somewhere. Or, yeah. you know, my daughter used to when my daughter was young, she used to tell her friends I was famous because I was in the newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> I had to tell her. She didn't even ask me to be here. I did, I'm not paying for this, I swear. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I had to tell her we actually paid for that ad. You know, <laughs> paid to be a newspaper. She didn't, you know. Still famous, though. Yeah. Yeah. yeah she thought that meant famous. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, outside of the real estate coaching, yeah. I think it translates well. Like a lot of our listeners are just, you know, small business owners yeah. and, and people looking to get into real estate. How do you find a coach? Like if you're looking to grow your own business, again, like outside the real estate professional business, how do you vet a coach? Like if somebody is looking to elevate themselves to that next step, what's the best step and who to look for? That's probably, it's a tough question because really you have to ask yourself, you know, part of it is you don't know what you don't know. You kind of know that you need something. And so part of it is maybe talking to friends and family about, you know, look at your business plan. I mean, do you have a business plan? Because if you don't, you probably need to start there and you don't really need to coach for that. You probably need more training. So if, if you don't have a business plan, then maybe you just need training. Or if you have a business plan and you're finding yourself not really sort of activating it or, or be having success with it, you know, that's where maybe a, a coach can help. And then you have to just ask yourself, you know, is, is it a life coach? Is it a business coach? And then look at their training and look at their experience. For example, I was in the dental industry. And so when I was coaching the dental industry, what was interesting about that is that the dentist would bring me in because the dentist is running their business but they're not running their business like a manager would. 
because they're part of the production. The dentist is sitting at the chair touching yep. their clients all day. Yep. So the best coach for dental practice is probably an ex-dental assistant because they know all the cheating that the staff does. Right. <laughs> I'm not the best coach for a dentist because I, I think like a manager because I have time to sit down and manage people. So I wouldn't be a great coach necessarily for dentistry. I knew lots about dentistry and I was a, a good thinker of dentistry. But when you we look at real estate, well, you're part of the production of the business. So, you know, real estate coaches should probably be coached by someone who was a real estate person. That, that I think that's important. But what kind of training do they have? What kind of training does that coach have? Then you ask yourself, are you the point where you just don't have any systems? You don't have any of that kind of stuff? Well, then, you know, that's a bigger question of your business plan. So you have to kind of say, okay, where am I in my career? What do I need for the next couple of years to get successful? And what's the right kind of coach? If someone's much more of a soft coach, like a life coach kind of thing, that can be really good, but then they might not have the technical expertise to say, you know, you're not doing enough work to actually get the clients and get the work done. Yeah. But at the same time, if you have a coach that's a bit more of a trainer, it just turns into cheerleading. I would say hire a coach, try three months, try three months at least, try four months, don't hire a coach on a weekly basis. Yeah. You know, like try the person out and see how they fit with you. The other side of it, do you need training or do you need coaching? And you can get, you can pay a lot less for training, right? And then after that, what is it in your business? Because you might need a consultant. So can you break those three down? Like training yeah. is just specific tasks in your industry. And yeah. yeah. So in real estate, for example, we need, we are considered salespeople, but we actually don't sell. But people say, I'm in real estate sales. So but what are you actually selling? Well, we don't actually sell because we don't sell the houses. What we're actually selling is our ability to give a client an outcome. So that's why interpersonal coaching works really well in real estate, because it's you're kind of selling yourself a little bit, but you're also selling all your good and bad habits because right? I'm the product. The house is not the product. But if I'm selling you know, car parts, Supply chain is the product, service, price, you know, access could be the product. So you have to really understand what you're actually selling. So part of that is, you know, as a coach, your personal motivation to get your job done during the day. The second part of it, do you have any technical deficiencies, which is training? The third part of it is, do I have resource deficiencies? So I hire consultants. Okay. So in our business in real estate, okay, well, consultants would almost be equivalent. Do you need a dental, do you need an assistant? You know, like it's somebody to do some work for you because real estate agents, you know, there's no shortage of paperwork. But for example, in our brokerage where we do a lot of that, we do a lot of the work for our, our agents. We are essentially a consultant for them because they subcontract a certain amount of work out to us and we get that work done. If we don't get the work done, they're mad at us. And if we do get the work done, they're happy with us. But they don't have to, ma- you don't have to necessarily manage a consultant, right? You say, hey, you're going to go do these three, three things for me and get them done and then you're done. So I look at it this way. You've kind of got your training, which is kind of maybe your own personal you know, toolbox, consulting, which is someone else's toolbox that you're going to hire. But the coaching should be probably managing yourself. Like how do you work through your, you know, the processes of running your business? Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you'll know the stats on this, but like the investment that you make dollar for dollar, say a coach is going to cost you 15000 or $10,000 a year. Yeah. What would you generally think the return on that is? Like, are there stats out there that kind of give a high level view? Probably not. But if you looked at at the executive coaching industry, like executives, for example, say you have board of directors of, uh, say, six to eight directors, typically a good executive coach with master's or PhD level training is going to be paid. You're probably going to pay them the same as one of your directors, right? So it could be that good. I mean, real estate coaching, a lot of people in real estate, for example, are paying anywhere from, say, you know, $800 to $1,500 a month. And uh, they wouldn't pay that if they didn't get the benefit from it. Right. So, yeah, no doubt. Yeah. 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 So you see that for sure. And in fairness, I signed up for a coach in uh, 2010, and all I wanted was the brochures. So I got the brochures, I got the systems and I did it for like six months and said, I'm good. Boom. Off I went. And then I just took all those things from that system and I just put it into my own system. Yeah. Right. So part of it was I bought the knowledge that that coach's training program had. Yeah. So to me, I knew it was training. I knew it wasn't going to be coaching. Right. Uh, And I was okay with that because I I got the booklet and I, you know, I got the tapes, I got the CDs and I thought that was, that was pretty cool. And do you find the barrier for entry for most people to hire a coach? Is it the money or the time? Because it's it's a huge time commitment as well. It's interesting because I have a, a friend who's a he's a coach and he's really bad. <laughs> and uh, 
he's really bad at it. But he did say something to me once which kind of stuck with me that, you know, when the student's ready, the coach will appear kind of thing. And if he hears this podcast, he'll be, he'll come and punch me in the nose. But, <laughs> but to a large extent, you know, you, if you're not ready to be coached, you won't be. But the first step is reaching out, right? So if somebody comes to us and says, you know, hey, I, I feel like I need, I want to look at what you do for coaching, then you know, going through that early sort of what you call discovery process is really important. So how you bring a, a client on is through questionnaires, through some self-assessments, and really how do you discover if it's a fit for you or not? And that self-discovery can bring up a lot of things too for the person. Because really, like when I look at coaching, it it's sort of like pushing the, you know, just keeping the ball in the air, a little bit like a volleyball game, you know, don't let the ball hit the ground, but yeah. that's hard because you do have bad days, right? People have bad days and real estate, cause it's kind of individualistic. It, you know, the coaching can go anywhere. I've been pretty lucky that the clients I've had, it, it always astounds, astonishes me that I have a talk with somebody for one hour every two weeks. And, you know, six months later, they've hit their targets and their life literally changes overnight. You know, they go from maybe just kind of making ends meet to suddenly they're, they're got cash flow they've never seen before. And you'll ask him and say, hey, so, you know, what do you think the secret is? And they'll say, oh, it's the coaching. And when you really analyze what we talk about, I don't feel like I've even done any coaching technically, but it's kind of a process of going through the the work that they're doing, right? So they have to be willing to do the work. They have to find a coach that can kind of meet them at that level. And then after that, you just never know where it goes. So Yeah. It is such a cool role you're taking on. Like, you know, when we're speaking about you have accountability as a real estate agent. So you, you have to perform because you're always in the public eye. You you almost have that as a coach, but on a much more narrow view from one person, like you've really got to be on your A game. You know, it's, it's interesting. Like when I, when I was coached by my coach, Suze, I have to have energy to talk to her because I know if we'll coach each other and she'll say, are you ready? And I'll be like, no, I'm not. I don't want to answer that question right now. Cause she'll ask me a question. I don't want to answer it. Because I, I am running from something that I don't want to talk about. But if I'm ready for it, she'll bring it out of me. And I sit there and like five minutes into the call, she'll say, okay, we're done. Pay my bill. Let's move on. Like in five minutes, she can give me a coaching session that actually just, tur- you know, literally takes me from going one direction to the other direction. And I feel like it's actually amazing to feel the energy of it. But there are times where you're kind of like, you know what, just tell me I'm doing a good job, you know? And, and it's not about telling me that I'm not doing a good job, but sometimes we don't want to face the, you know, we're not processing the things in our head in such a way that things are clear. And so coaches can really help with that, but you got to be willing to go there. (laughs) And I kind of joke about it because if you've ever tried to talk to your spouse about things, for example, you can't coach your spouse, right? Because it's, that's the relationship. And if you run into somebody, I say, you know, that person has a problem for every solution. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so, so those people you try to ask, you know, you try to uncover the layers of what's going on and they just put more blocks up right yeah and so that person not ready so when you're coaching them they can have those blocks for sure because that's their experience but a good coach can generally help somebody really work through that and and it's amazing to me how quick it is because everyone says oh that's a slow process it's not i've seen it happen in two to three like literally two months where people have been making no money to making like top producer level money in four to six weeks yeah but if they're not willing if they're not ready to do the work it's hard or their perception of what the work is, is different. We see that a lot too. A lot of guys are like, you're going to, I'm going to talk to you every two weeks and you're going to give me this to-do list. And I'm going to feel really excited after our calls. And I'll be like, well, you know, you're not really answering the questions I'm asking you. <laughs> and then it's just not a fit. So. Yeah. Hmm. Awesome. Changing um, gears a little bit here. That sounds kind of boring. Though. Everyone's going, I already talked about esoteric stuff, but you know, so what makes a great agent? Yeah. And like, what makes a great agent and all like kind of the same is what should buyer, like what should people look for in their agent? A live body. <laughs> no, actually, you know what? I, my pet peeve in business is I love, even to this day, if you called me up and said, Dean, someone wants to buy a house, that would really excite me. Even though I would be kind of forced to hand them off to someone else, yeah. I get really excited about working with buyers because, you know, working with buyers is a place where all the experience you have as a homeowner, as a parent, as a business person, as a realtor, you can give it to that buyer in a very short period of time. And if you don't care about the outcome, you only care about their success, you can be the best per- the consultant they've ever had in their life, right? And so that's what I like about buying, is by helping buyers, first-time buyers, experienced buyers. It's a real fresh thing because the market's all out there. All you have to do is help them figure it out. Yeah. You open the door and they walk in the house. And I always tell people, after you look at five houses, you'll know the pricing better than I will. Yeah. Cause you know, you're what you're, for your specific product. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know that there's four bedrooms in the house. That's why you put it on the list to go look at it. You yeah. know, there's carpet in the bathroom downstairs. You don't need, you know, cause I know you've looked at it, but the real question <laughs> is we can open the door. 
Yeah. And, and let them analyze, you know, let yeah. them feel it. Yeah. But I think to me, it, it's, you know, so choosing a realtor to help you with that and then choosing a listing realtor, they're two different realtors. And I think that someone can be really good at both. I think listing agents that are working with buyers are better listing agents because they know the pricing better. That's important. But choosing a buyer's agent is someone that has a system for helping somebody buy and that has a really good onboarding interview. Sitting down with somebody. I think today, like the standard today is no more, I'll meet you at the house and then we'll go look at 10 houses. The standard today is I'll meet you at the house because you called me to look at that one house, but let's go back to my office and talk about, you know, what you're trying to achieve. Because I don't think I would, you know, and I, and I didn't for the last number of years, I won't show a house to somebody that's not set up for financing. I won't show a house to somebody that hasn't thought about the lawyer they're going to hire, thought about the home inspection, thought about all the different things that they want in a house and had a really good onboarding interview. Like, what are you really looking for out of this house? You know, if you're a first time buyer, do you have a dog? <laughs> do you want a dog? <laughs> you know, are you ever going to have kids? You know, what does that look like? And I mean, these are all really important things, but when you tell a first time buyer, like I was able to, when I first started, okay, well, yeah, you can afford a condo, but it's two bedrooms and you work from home. And what if you have a baby? Did you know it's going to cost you about $40,000 to sell that $250,000 condo? And they look at you and go, no, no one told me that. And I said, well, yeah, that's what happened. So, you know, so maybe buying that thing you can just afford now is not the right choice, right? So you're really making some decisions about, you know, and in those days, finding condos that you could rent out was hard because a lot of the stratas were stopping that. Mm -hmm. The first time buyers that I had, I wouldn't let them buy if they were young, something that they couldn't rent out because if they ever had to sell it, they probably would lose way more than even 40,000. Because what happens? They live in Kelowna, they finish their school, one partner finishes and suddenly that partner gets a job in Calgary and it's 2013 and the market's down and they can't rent out their condo. So they got to sell it. Well, they lose 40 grand just like that. Or, but if they could rent it out, they could move to Calgary and rent for a couple of years, keep their investment in Kelowna. Well, if you kept your investment in 2013 and you sold it in 2017, you were really happy with your realtor, right? Yeah. So little things like that, that I think experienced people can give. And my pet peeve with the industry is we typically in real estate hand off buyers and first time buyers to newer agents who may not have that type of skill set yet. So yeah, it's, I find it's a fine line to walk. Same with in the mortgage industry, like yeah. you're you're giving very crucial advice, but you really have to tap into the mindset of your client and put yourself in their position because my advice for myself is not going to be the same for a first time home buyer, much like an agent trying to buy a house, like your example. So yeah, like you said, you really need to interview them and, and onboard them properly. Yeah. And that goes for first time buyers also goes for people coming to town who are, you know, the old seasoned buyer who knows exactly what they want, but they don't really but they play off like they do, right? They, you see, they walk into the open house. Oh yeah, just tell me the price of the house. Yeah, I've bought and sold lots of houses. But you know, that's great for them. But what about your relationship with them, right? So how are you going to work together, right? That's the big one. Everyone's like, oh, you never get a day off in real estate. I said, well, I, you know, you can get a day off. You just have to plan for it. Yeah. And if you take days off that don't impact the outcome for your clients, then that's even better. But we have to be better as real estate agents of saying, by the way, there's no new listings on Sundays. So, you know, we probably don't need together on Sundays for looking at houses, you right. know, so maybe I can take Sundays off and, you know, th- that's hard to do, right? Because you never know when the offers come in, but as a buyer's agent, you can control that part of it, right? So, yeah. and, you know, if, if you take some time off, who's covering your business? So that was always something too. And, you know, we have to tell our clients that a lot of times you can do that in your onboarding meeting, but you can't do it as you're driving from showing to showing. And what happens today is people don't get in our cars anymore, I mean, they haven't gotten our cars even before COVID. I mean, we have agents here that they don't want you in their car and vice versa. Certainly if there's kids, right? (laughs) (laughs) With car seats and no. But, you know, because we don't travel in their cars so much anymore, we don't have those little conversations between the houses. So, you know, stopping the whole process, having a buyer interview, I think is is pretty important today. And getting good at that buyer interview is, will make or break your career really, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny you say that. I think Emily had a client maybe a month ago and it was similar, you know, car seat in the back. And it was like, okay, let's, let's take it out and make it presentable. Cause they wanted her to drive and it was out in Lake country. And, um, you know, she was a little hesitant. And then when she came back, she was like, it was great. You actually got to talk to someone for a full hour and a half yeah. there and back. Yeah. And like, it made the relationship so much better. Yeah. And she got sick two days later. Cause they all get cold, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it, they used to do that in the old days. I mean, I, 
I kind of jokingly say, you know, the new agents today will never understand how exciting it is to drive across town in a snowstorm and hand the contract between your car window to another guy in, the, in Orchard Park in a snowstorm yeah. because we didn't have DocuSign, right? But there's so many of those interactive things that are missing. But what's great about working with buyers is that compared to listings, you know, you're very interactive with your clients. And when you're showing them houses that they have an urgent need to buy, you're probably seeing them every few days. And so that level of service is, it's intoxicatingly fun for both parties. It's fun for the agent, it's fun for the client. The client has a real sense that you're doing work for them. Whereas on the listing side, you know, if you don't get a showing for three or four days, it's pretty much, you know, the listing agent goes from the zero to a hero real fast, you know, if it's not an active market. So listings is just such a different interaction with clients that being a buyer agent, I don't think it's easier, but it can be a little bit more rewarding early on. So this is a question for both of you guys. And how do you replace that lack of FaceTime and relationship? Like if you're not meeting someone at Orchard Park and like you're not having those interactions and it's all just over text and email, there must be a way to supplement it. Like obviously top producing agents that get that five-star Google review are having those touch points. Yeah, that's a good question. What do you think? Like I think like texting or having like when you do see them, like having the first conversation, but also when you're at the houses, like you can kind of make the most of it. You're at the house for half an hour talking about it. And then like texting, like I feel like back in the day you call them, but you are probably calling them once a day at the most, but probably once, once or twice a week. Whereas texting, like you text all day. Yeah. So it's almost like you're in constant communication yeah. just throughout yeah. the day. Yeah. yeah. And I, it's actually funny. You're talking about driving around clients. Like I have quite a few clients right now where I'm driving them around. I just worked out that way. I don't feel them elderly and don't have cars or whatever. And I love that. I think it's fantastic. I'm going to become one of Matt's clients. I'm sick of filling up my gas tank. I just went, yeah, no, I want to see this house uh, down near the sports shop. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Then Matt Matt will be like, oh, you go drive by first. Yeah. Yeah. I'll meet you there. Why don't you just drop me off for sushi real quick, pick me up, and then we go check out the house. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, that goes back into, you talk about coaching, right? So when we're coaching agents, you know, and I want to learn how they're doing it, you know, you learn what people are doing. And a lot of agents haven't really thought about the process of buying a house. And, you know, they throw the client in the car and they got five houses to look at. And the client's not even interested in three or four of them. Or, you know, they're not qualified because they haven't talked to their mortgage yeah. broker. And so, you know, part of that whole process is, you know, having the discipline personally not to show somebody a house that's not ready to buy it. You know, when I was a listing agent, I used to love to tell my clients, well, you know, and they'd say, well, you know, we want you to be our listing agent. I said, well, what do you actually think I do? And they're like, well, you're going to sell our house. And I said, well, you know, I'm not going to sell your house. I'm probably not going to talk to the buyers, you know, but they're under the impression I'm going to sell their house magically. Like the, the couches and the drapes are going to sell the house, but it's not that way. And so when we're interacting, how do we get our clients to understand what we actually do? We open doors and they walk through the house and everything else. But if the client's not qualified to buy the house and we book a showing, are we not doing a disservice to the seller because the seller thinks that that person's ready to buy the house? Yeah. And so, you know, just what are the interpersonal habits that the agent can develop that is better for the agent and their clients and then the other agent and the other agent's clients? And I think that's something that we don't take seriously enough because it only takes one or two bad agents who don't qualify their clients, who write offers that aren't pre-qualified, who, you know, they write a full price offer and then they realize that, that the mortgage broker doesn't even have, you know, their T4 from the year before, right? And they're just not ready. But the problem is the seller's expectation is that that person is actually buying their house. And so, you know, for example, when we sit down with our buyers and say, listen, are you going to buy a house this weekend? And they say, no. I said, okay, that's awesome. Well, we want to see houses tonight. I go, well, we're not. And they go, why? I said, well, because we're not kicking somebody out of their house at five o'clock on a Friday. If you're going to buy their house, we'll kick them out all night if we had to, but you're not. So let's go tomorrow at noon. And they're like, really? I go, well, if you were selling your house and we booked a showing Friday at five o'clock, you'd be waiting for the feedback at 630. But if I call up the agent and say, listen, you know, I've got some folks, they're here for a couple of days. They want to look at houses. Do you have any showings we can piggyback on? Because we're not writing an offer, but we want to screen some properties. Well, now the listing agent can go to their seller and really sort of position the whole showing, right? Yeah. So that we're being more respectful to their time. And so, but that doesn't happen as much as it should. And so, but that's my interpersonal habits. And so, you know, how do I make myself a better agent, but I'm also better for my client? Because now the client goes, oh, because I always just say to my clients for buying, the minute I book the showing, the negotiation starts. And that's another thing you want to look for an agent. Does the agent know how to negotiate? Because when you book the showing on the house, that's when the negotiation starts. And if you're not buying the house, you should let them know because that's the negotiations too, right? 
<laughs> because a smart listing agent will say, wow, I know they weren't buying, but did they like the house? Oh, yeah, they love the house. I said, is there any way we could, you know, help them buy sooner than later? Yeah. <laughs> right. But that's, we're losing that art a little bit because it's a bit more book to showing, show up at the thing and leave. And then you ask for feedback and you don't get it. And, you know, so there's a lot of these dynamics that happen that we miss a little bit. But I think that you go, go back to coaching. Well, that's where an agent can really sharpen their interpersonal habits, but make themselves a better agent, not only for their client, but for the industry. So that's kind of like my little soapbox on that, because it's, it's a tough one. Like, and what was great about COVID? No showings unless you're buying a house. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Right. So there was no, for lack of a better word, there was no BS in the industry anymore. What happened six months after COVID? Oh, what do you think of the house? Oh, my folks are, they're just looking. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's okay. Like we're, people are allowed to look like when you agree to put your house on MLS, you're agreeing to show it to strangers. Right. And that's part of it. I think that's okay. But I think, wouldn't it be much better to say, Hey, can we look at your house Friday at one o'clock? Is that okay? Oh no, no. I've got a little something going on. Well, how about Saturday at one o'clock? Okay. Well, that's good. Not Sunday. Cause I'm taking Sundays off. Right. So, but that's part of that discipline. That's interpersonal discipline, which a lot of agents just never get even top producers and some top producers have it less. And then, you know, at the end of their career, they end up, you know, they just work too hard and they kind of get burned out. And so that's part of that, what we call realtor quality of life thing. But so when a client's looking for a real estate agent, I want to look for a disciplined buyer's agent that has a system that knows how to negotiate. But you're also not negotiating to get the best price. So I don't want that to be misconstrued. It's negotiate to actually get the house that you need, because sometimes the best price is over the asking price. (laughs) Yeah. Because a realtor can't make a bad house a good deal. (laughs) like there's no price that can make the wrong house a good deal. So it's not often not about price so much, but then sometimes it is about price. So, but negotiation, I think is one of these things that, you know, we, it's a skill and I teach it. And I think that it's important. So looking for an agent would be a negotiation systems and that good buyer interview, I think is really important. And then after that, it's pretty easy. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're bang on there. Like setting expectations right off the bat, like you said, you know, blocking off Sundays, it makes for a better experience for everyone. Yeah, now you know what's going to happen. No one's going to work Sundays in Cologne anymore because I, you know, I've done a podcast. Perfect. I mean, nobody works Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays either. So my favorite one was busy when the listing agent would be like, "Hey, we're not looking at offers until Sunday morning at 11. I'm like, "What an own goal! Yeah, why are you making us all work on Sunday? Like, why can't you say Monday afternoon too?" Right. Well, with the rescission period now, that's probably the you know, in fairness, I, I shouldn't say it, but I think that's stupid because the rescission period is 72 hours. Yeah. So if it's not a holiday on a Monday, wait till Monday or Tuesday, look at offers. Yeah. There's no reason to take offers Fridays, Saturdays, or Sundays anymore. You might as well let you have showings all weekend because yeah. the rescission period is going to do the holdover till Wednesday anyways. Yeah. So why not just wait till Monday, screen all the offers on Monday. By Thursday, the deal could be firm. And you know what you've done is you've created a situation where the seller can make sure their house is ready for the weekend. You can definitely deal with last minute showings, right? You you don't have to panic. You can let people know that there's activity on the house. Yeah. Yeah, I think as you know, the, one of the things I probably hate the most about real estate in the Okanagan is the new listing on Friday and you go in there Saturday morning, but it got sold Friday night. Yeah. And I can say that I've seen that in my career hundreds of times. And I think that it's just, in my opinion, it's malpractice by the listing agent because the excuses are, you know, oh, my clients, you know, really want, they didn't want to let the offer go. And then you realize later on that it's not the client, it's the, how the agent kind of thinks yeah, about things. And most of the time it's that way. And it's frustrating because I don't want to say that that's, you know, that maybe that's unethical, but that's not good for free market. It's not good for capitalism. And, you know, sellers have a lot of fear, right? But as a listing agent, I can tell you like that offer that was there Friday night, I've seen maybe one out of 300 times where it wasn't there Saturday morning, yeah. that same offer wasn't there on Sunday. And so anybody who says different than that, I can yeah. argue with them all day long. Now there are always exceptions to the rule yeah. Yeah. and clients can definitely, you know, make their choices. But, you know, I think with the rescission period in BC and the regulator's goal to slow down the process, I think, you know, that will benefit buyers and sellers by just waiting to the end of the weekend. And now what that also does is it allows people to screen the properties. The negative of that is if what if somebody does come to town in Kelowna and says, I need the house by Saturday night and I'm willing to pay way more than maybe it's worth or something like that. And so, you know, you do take that option away. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think if we change our habits a little bit, we'll make it all just a little bit better. So, yeah, definitely. Time for everyone's favorite part of the show, the ice maker section brought to you by myself, Matt Glenn. If you could buy one property in the Okanagan, recreational or personal, what would you buy? Oh, that's bad. I'm 56. So I'm a Gen Xer. So I'm not ready to buy an RV yet. That would be the property because they're almost that price. But I actually looked for a recreation property to park my RV on. Oh, yeah. I actually 
for a brief moment had that little weak spot. But if I had to buy a property right now, what I would buy right now would be a house that was either, you know, less than three or four years old or brand new that just got built because that house is energy efficiency wise is probably going to be step code three or higher, step code four or five even. If I could get a step code five, I would because the efficiency of the house and the materials in the long run is going to be two to three times greater than the current housing supply. And even though rates are a little bit high right now, you probably negotiate a little bit better and build costs are going up 10 to 15% a year. So I try to get something that I have no maintenance, no payments, you know, nothing to kind of break down for 10 or 15 years. And that's the kind of house I would buy right now in any category, whether it's a townhome, my personal preference is I'm never going to buy a house that doesn't have a suite in it anymore anyways. Yep. So yep. whether that's a luxury yep. home with a suite or a, I probably, I might buy a purpose-built rental, but the cap rates don't work. So that's another thing buyer's agents should know how to do cap rates, but that's the house I would buy right now. I wouldn't buy something that I had to renovate. I probably wouldn't buy something overly luxurious that was maybe older. Yeah, I wouldn't, wouldn't buy a fixer-upper right now. And that's mostly because I'm not handy anymore. You know, I'm extremely handsome. And so I just, <laughs> so that's my thing. Okay, I'm going to piggyback on that question. And you'll probably hate this question, but crystal ball, where do you see the market going? And I'm asking this because like, you had a very good point. Build costs are going up 10 to 15%. Like, yeah, I agree. Build costs are exponentially rising. The cost of DCC costs are going up. Like everything's just getting more expensive. Do you think that drives the market? Do you think immigration drives the market? Do you think interest rates drive the market down? Where will we be in one, two, three years from now? That's like a crystal ball kind of question. It's all going to crash, sell now, and move to Mexico. And you'd be surprised. A lot of people there, are doing There that, are right? a handful so, of people that have done First of all, I don't think like where we are, we live in the Okanagan. So uh, like I say, it's where realtors come to die. And it's where everyone wants to be. I mean, we are the Palm Springs of Canada, really. And, yeah. and technically, we're in the same desert. We're just at the northern tip of it, right? Yeah. yeah. So immigration is driving the market. So five years ago, when I looked at a CPS coming through the office, it had one name on it, two names. The last couple of years, it's got three or four or five names on it. And so what you're seeing happening is from the early 1700s, when you know the early French people came to New France, yeah. they came here for what? They got land. Yeah. You know, Louis XIV gave those 300 soldiers from Algeria land. They sent the women later, right? But we've every immigration cycle in Canada and North America, people come here because they want to own land. We have a British common law system, a capitalist system of land, freehold land that's very healthy. We can finance it. We can leverage small down payments and own it. And in a lot of the countries where people are coming from, it's just not practical or they're just not capable to do that. So if you bring in more than a couple hundred thousand immigrants a year to Canada, the first thing they say is, let's get together and buy property. And so that's probably the biggest driver. The other one is obviously interest rates. But, you know, is the Canadian market overheated in terms of pricing? I'm not an economist, so I can't say that. But I also know that when I started in 2008, a statistic that blew me away was less that there were 40% of Canadians didn't have a mortgage on their house. Yeah. And, and you know that through mortgage. It's still right? similar, yeah. So if it's still similar, then there's a lot of equity there, which means there's room and there's room not to sell. And so as long as Canadians don't have to sell, the market's not crashing. Yeah. And we have to be careful in Canada not superimpose the American system on the Canadian system, which is much more free market, where the mortgage default rules are different. The, the short sale rules are quite a bit different. You know, our entire system is, I mean, it's a little bit, I call it managed capitalism in a sense, right? So, for example, when there's a foreclosure, we have to prove to the bank that the house was sold for market value. We can't sell it on a short sale for 20 cents on the dollar. The court won't accept that. Yeah. So there's all these protections in place. If you can't pay your mortgage, but you can pay the interest, there isn't a bank around that's not, gonna, they're not going to foreclose on you. They'll take interest payments for, I've seen it for three years, but from 2007. So we have all these systems that are baked in to protect consumers in Canada. Some of them probably good, some of them bad. And with all the immigration that's coming and they have the same desires that all of our forefathers had. I think I always joke about like, when did your forefathers arrive in Canada, right? Because they all had the same goal. And I think you're just not going to see that happen. I think what's going to happen, though, is because we have an election coming up, part of my thought is the interest rates are going to go up a little bit right now, but then they're going to start to go down because in order for the the liberals to get elected, I was thinking about this. this, I was literally going to think about this this morning about the interest rates are going to come down before the election, for sure. And the fix is in because 
2024 in the U.S., the last year of an election cycle typically is the best economic year. So that'll rise. So there'll be a good year in the U.S. Our interest rates will start to go down. So I honestly think the next four to six months is probably the bottom for costs. Yeah, I agree. And you're seeing people like sort of getting together buying houses. So if I was to buy that new house, I would buy a multi-generational house with a suite in it. I'd buy a house that's good for a couple families, you know, or parents and kids or kids and parents and just a house that has more options. And I think that those are always going to be insulated. And new, like you're saying, is even better because then your cost of ownership in that first five to six years is kind of a fixed number and you're not getting uh, nickel and dime to death. I was unfortunate or fortunate to start in 2008. And by 2009 and 10, I was doing a lot of foreclosure work. And I can tell you, the people that got foreclosed, I was involved in just under 40 foreclosure transactions, either buying it, selling it, going to court. You know, I was lucky enough to have a lot of clients. When I was working for the banks, a lot of them second mortgage holders, and I'd meet the people that were getting foreclosed, they had one thing in common, and they bought the wrong house, and they often had an agent that wasn't even in the business anymore. So they used the wrong buyer's agent, and they bought the wrong house. And so for me, you know, what was the wrong house? Well, many of them could have been renting for a lot cheaper than they bought, and the fundamentals of their their purchase didn't make sense. And I think if you look at our our rates right now, I don't know, you know, it's it's we're always teetering on that, right? But I don't think we're too out of whack. I mean, it's different when four people buy a house versus a husband and wife, right? Or a husband that stays, you know, maybe a wife or a husband stays home and the other partner's working, then you have one income. Well, then you're susceptible to that. But when there's three or four people on title, that changes quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Because we all need to live somewhere. So I'm not thinking the market's going to go up. I think it will stay probably flat. But I also think interest rates are going to change and that'll create a whole new buying frenzy. And the only way somebody's going to afford a new house is if they're willing to pay those new prices. But those new houses, like those ones that are less than, say, five years old, are going to have efficiency to them that might make it worthwhile. Right. Bit of upfront cost for a bigger purchase price, but you'll potentially save over the years. I think so. I mean, we just finished a net zero house up in Wilden here. And, you know, that house is going to cost $30 a month to heat and cool forever. Wow. Once the solar panels are installed, right? So you're seeing the builders now with these highly efficient houses you know, being able to come out with them and, and it's, it's expensive, but it's not that expensive now. So, yeah. Well, Matt, Matt's house just got substantially cheaper. His air conditioner broke, so he doesn't use it anymore. Awesome. So it's yeah. saving lots of money. Energy yeah. efficient right there. Well, I promise you this is not saving us any money. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever been in the houses that never had air conditioning? Yeah, I, they never the, had yeah I grew up in one. It was fun. Yeah. Beck is actually just in the driveway in the car with the air conditioner full blown. So when we got, when we bought our house, the previous owners, they just installed like brand new heat pump and AC. That swipes <laughs> up, it doesn't work. They didn't ever use it. They just had the doors open and they had like shades over all the windows. And like, we were like, just like last week, we were like, hey, you suckers, why aren't you using your system? Now it's like, my God, tell us how it worked. We had uh, film put on our windows. Oh yeah. oh yeah. And man, like it changed everything overnight. We were going to put solar panels on the house and then this yeah. quote was a lot less than that. So we thought we'd try it. And yeah, overnight we noticed a difference in how the house heated up. Really? But it's testing it this week because of the heat. But I mean, if you look at a house from the late 60s, early 70s, you look at the window area versus yeah. like a house today, it's so different, right? Oh, yeah. And then the overhangs in terms of shade. And, and you drive past those houses downtown that have those old roll shutters on the outside of the yeah. house. And yeah. they use those things, right? So, yeah. Yeah. Very much. Yeah. All right, Dean, what's the best thing you've ever spent money on? My wife. Yeah. Good, <laughs> good answer. Good answer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No. You know what? I have to say, um, it's funny. Like, If I want to know, like if I was ever hiring anybody or even a a person in real estate, I'm going to ask them, tell me about how you bought your car and you'll find out exactly how they think about the universe. Interesting. They'll tell you if they appreciate that. So I worked in the biotech business. Our products were 13 to 20% more expensive than our nearest competitor, but we defined the business. We had all the research. We had all the best doctors, best technology. And when I found out our competitors' prices were the same of ours, we raised them 13%. And we, we told that to our clients. And they went, oh, yeah, fine, whatever. Because the ability to sell value is different. And so to, you know, because it's almost intangible, right? Because we can't tell the difference between Coke and Pepsi. Most of us can't taste the beer that we drink on a regular basis from a side of other beers. And, and so from a consumer's perspective, consumers don't know good or bad. They don't know if I'm a good realtor or not. If they walk into the open house and I look like a flashy guy, well, whatever. I, I kind of, there's an assumption of skill there that, that is correct or incorrect. You know, how do we make those, you know, how do we choose? So 
how we choose is how we act. And so if you talk to somebody about how they buy, say, a car, well, tell me about how you bought your Hyundai, right? Or tell me about how you bought this. And they'll tell you, the clients will tell you exactly how they're going to treat you in the future. Because if they went to the dealership 10 times, talked to four different salespeople, and went, you know, price to price to feature to feature, you know you're in for an interesting listing, or you know for your yeah. interesting ride. But if the person says, I sat down with the salesperson and kind of talked about what we wanted, and, you know, we went back and forth a bit, but really what I wanted was them to stand behind their product with a good warranty and maybe throw some extras in. Then that gives you the sense of what's really important to that, right? Because we know now that in many businesses, the service is gone. And so when I, for example, when I, when I buy products now, I look and say, listen, I honestly don't care what the price is anymore. I really don't care. But are you going to, are you going to honor it with some follow-up service? How's the warranty? If something breaks, do I get a loan? Like, what are the things that are going to make my experience with this product better? Because that's, what's really important because at the end of the day, consumerism, it's, it's, you know, I don't want to buy something cheap from full of lead paint from, you know, maybe China, I want to spend a little bit more money on something that's got more quality to it. And so what's interesting about that is as agents who are, you know, on our own, we can learn a lot about people by asking how they make their own purchase decisions. So I would never hire somebody in our biotech business who couldn't show me that they purchase based on value. Because if you don't buy based on value, you can't sell it based on value. And so I see that a lot in our business, a lot where they like, Funny, one of the agents when I was at my previous, when I started out, he jokingly said, you know, 2006, everyone was, all the realtors were driving BMWs, but by 2009, they're all driving Hyundais. Yeah. And the funny part was the Hyundais are probably better quality vehicles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they happen to be a lower price. But yeah. so my point is, you know, when you're choosing your agent, does the agent understand value? But when you're talking to your client, does your client purchase based on value? Because they'll tell you what they really value. Because part of it too is, you know, when you're selling, you know, when you're showing houses or you're selling houses, do they recognize a good offer when it's a good offer? Yeah. Yeah. And that's you, know, you know, what's funny thinking back, thinking back in this bit is like realtors, we can't really sell our own houses because we're not insured, but we, as realtors, we hire other people to sell our houses, but we always get the cheapest realtor <laughs> and pay them nothing to each other. We're like we do nothing but sell our services. But when we do it to each other, we're like, will you sell my house for three grand? It's like, what is going on there? But like, you, you notice... We always have a full buyer commission. Yeah, yeah. Because we know we don't want to sacrifice that. Because even though yeah, we, yeah, we can't control buyers, that, yeah. right? But we don't want... So, you know, that goes back to what we charge. Well, I kind of joking... Because I said to Wendy before I took the course, I said, honey, it's only $1,000 for the real estate course. We'll save $1,000 on my you know, our next real estate transaction. Yeah. And I looked at the commission and went, wow, I can save $25,000 when I sell my house. And I realized well, I was going to save almost nothing becoming a realtor. Yeah. But yeah. what you learn, though, is what rules you can bend and what rules you don't mess with. And part of it is when I do my listing of my own house, I want there to be a full commission because I want the agents out there who right now, are, some are struggling, right? But I want them to look at my listing with that full excitement that they're going to be paid yeah. for the work they're going to do. And I don't want anything to get in the way of that. But even though we ask for the agent maybe to give a discount, we're generally picking a good agent. Yeah, a yeah. We're picking a good agent, but we're asking them. Yeah. But then you owe them one, and then you know you're going to have to do it for them. So it's kind of yeah, a two-way yeah, street. That's so. true. I just, uh, that's funny, though. Like Even like my friends and family, where I give them like, a break, I always say, like, listen, the buy side has got to be full because it just... Just don't want any reason for them to not pick your house, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. So, like, you give your family a deal? <laughs> well, Depends we need to have a coaching speak. session on that. Yeah. yeah. We need to talk about that. Okay. Uh, best book or quote? Hey, you know what? I, I feel like kind of a, I don't know if I should do this or not, but I'm reading this book. It was online and I kind of clicked on it and I went, oh, interesting. And it directed me over to Amazon and I got this little podcast from the guy and it was called Buy Back Your Time by Dan Martell, who turns out is a Kelowna guy. And I didn't know it at the time. I haven't met him. I don't know him. I'm sure, you know, people that are listening might even know him. And I see his, his, his car around town. It's, it says buy back on his license plate. And it's a, it's a blue something or it might be a McLaren or something. I don't know supercars that much. Yeah. But I've often thought of maybe tracking him down because I see him, I see his car at the Yacht Club a lot, right? I'm thinking that's where he is. But that book is, interesting enough, is exactly what we do at this brokerage for our agents. So we help our agents buy back their time by uh, subcontracting a lot of work for you so you can spend more time with your clients. And as I'm reading through the book, I'm like, because as a new owner, I want to add more of that to our brokerage, not only for myself, but for the agents, right? So I'm looking through his book and I literally... I haven't even gotten through the first chapter and it's all full of sticky notes and I'm writing notes in my book and I'm taking videos. And, and I have to say, it's one of the few books that's actually surprised me by how 
exciting it is to actually read. And it's not because I think that Dan is like this great hero and he's saving the world. I just think that for someone that's self-employed, if they can learn 10% of what he's trying to convey in the book, it's going to help them. Like it's very rare you see that where even just one or two parts of a book can really help people. And I think for real estate agents and self-employed people, it's a fun book to read. I mean, a lot of it you might not do or whatever, and, and maybe some of it seems out of reach, but it's very rare that you see a book that's pretty practical. You know, the, the alternative is, you know, you go read, you know, maybe a Covey book or something that talks about trust and integrity for like four hours, right? But this book is pretty much, it punches you right in the nose in the introduction. And you're, you're putting sticky notes going, oh shit, I can try. Oh, I can, sorry about the language, but hey, I can do that. Or I can try this, or I can try that. Or, you know, that's speaking to me. And so as a real estate agent, as a coach, as a business owner, it's a really cool book to read. So I, there I am. Cool. Yeah, I haven't read that yet. Yeah. 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 I'll order that. Real refreshing. And, and for me, it's fun to see it. The second part was, wow, he's in Kelowna. Yeah. yeah Kelowna, but I know there's a ton of talented people in Kelowna that, that we just walk past them every day. And, and you know, in their yeah, own I'm usually business. out on the street. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pushing yeah. my cart, you know. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, how can people uh, reach out to you, connect with you? Like obviously um, maybe not local agents, but if someone wants to reach out to you as a coach and oh, local agents can call me too, even because yeah, okay. what we'd love to talk about is coming to the brokerage, right? So uh, one of the things about our brokerage is that because we do practice a lot of those principles that Dan talks about in terms of helping our agents buy back their time, you know, we free up our agents. I mean, we do it on a listing. You know, I did an analysis of a business the other day for an agent and it, you know, it's a good producing agent. And I can save this agent probably 20 full days of work a year using our system. Nice. And, 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 you know, you think about being overworked. Well, it's not the days. Think about three hours at night yeah. when you want to put your kids to bed or, you know, you want to sit down with your son and just read a book or something. And, you know, when I came to this brokerage in 2013, I was overworked, stressed, but I was the world's greatest agent. And I was amazingly talented because I had 25 listings. But my assistant looked at me and said, you're a wreck. <laughs> you're angry, you know, whatever. And when I came here, you know, that's what I felt right away was that I was able to buy back that time. And so, um, yeah, get a hold of me, just Century 21 Assurance Realty in Kelowna, search for Dean. I am infamous. I am on the internet. So there's stories there, which are uh, <laughs> partly true. But yeah, no, just an email is, is great anytime. So I'd love to talk to anyone about anything and even a local agent. If they don't come here, I just love to help them analyze their business because it's, for me, the coaching journey starts with a business plan and I'll do that almost for anybody. Like it's, for me, it's fun. I just like to help people because keep in mind every time, every, every time any real estate agent gets a little bit better at what they're doing, the entire profession gets better. Yeah. And it means that buyers make better buying choices. Uh, sellers do a better job selling good quality homes. So I, you know, I think it's all, you know, no one climbs the big hill alone is kind of something I like to say. So maybe we can go a year without getting some sort of finet or a substantial rule change. No, no, they're coming. There's, there's a couple more on the way. So <laughs> oh, yeah, there always is. Well, yeah. Well, That's an evergreen statement there. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was awesome. We'd, we'd love to have you back. Awesome. Yeah. Tons of good information. Anytime, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully there was some knowledge in there for guys, but. Uh, oh, yeah. There definitely is. Yeah. Tons. Don't screw it up. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Kelowna Real Estate Podcast. Be sure to reach out and let us know how else we can add value to your Kelowna real estate journey. Please show some support by hitting the like, share, and subscribe button. This is sponsored by Matt Glenn Real Estate and Taylor Adventure Mortgages.